He says, beginning in verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out, he says, my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions. And my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned. And done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. The God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. And Father, we just humbly ask for your grace and the help of your Holy Spirit as we open up the word of God this evening once again and consider particularly, Lord, this Psalm, the 51st Psalm here that we have from David and Lord, the personal experience that it came from in his own life as a lover of God, as someone who walked with you, but yet Lord erred greatly and how Lord you intervened to turn him back to you and allowed him to Lord turn back and Lord to begin again afresh through your forgiveness and your mercy. And we just pray that every reason why your Holy Spirit gave these words through David initially, Lord, that they would find a proper place in each one of our hearts tonight. So, Lord, meet us where we're at. We pray you would strengthen our bodies and our minds. You know what our day has been. We just ask that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, make us alert and attentive. And most of all, let us hear your voice through the word of God and by the spirit of God. And we ask for you to do this expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. 
Psalm 51 is probably, again, one of the more famous psalms that we have from David, and in some ways, I think, really expresses to us probably one of the most personal experiences that David himself went through, particularly during a time in David's life when he really had erred greatly. And we're so thankful, of course, that the Holy Spirit worked in David's life the way that he did through this process, because this psalm has given great comfort and insight and guidance and counsel to so many of us through the years. And I'm so glad, again, that in the midst of a time of great failure in David's life, that David didn't just choose to wallow in his own self-pity or just choose to run off and just make a ruinous mess of the remainder of his life, but instead that David had the courage to face his own failures, to embrace his own mistakes, to ultimately own up to his own sin. And it was a process, and we'll talk about that. But ultimately, because he owned up to his own mistakes and fully embraced his own failures in a spirit of repentance, and again, repentance is not just being remorseful or sad, because you've done something wrong. Uh, The Bible says that godly sorrow then produces repentance. Repentance is change. Repentance is I have been going east and I realize that east is the absolute wrong direction and that I turn around and I make a practical decision to choose to then begin to go west, to turn away from the way I've been going and to completely turn in the direct opposite direction, to turn away from my way or the devil's way or the world's way and to turn back to God's way and to make things right with him once again. And that is what biblical repentance is. Biblical repentance is something that's measured by fruit. It's measured by actions. It's something that's seen even more than heard. Uh, And David here writes this psalm, and as clearly as you can see, a psalm of David's repentance. As David cries out to God, as he makes confession of his sin and indicates to God that he is tired and done with the life of deception and the lie that he had been living in for a season of time in his life after some great sins and failures that he did not deal with right away. And David now turning to God and wanting to make the slate clean between him and the Lord and turning back to the Lord, asking and receiving the forgiveness of the Lord in his life. And we're so glad that David did this because it gives hope to all of us. And it reminds us that one of the greatest gifts that God has given to us as humanity really is this thing called repentance. Repentance is the opportunity to change. And I don't know about you, there's been a few times, at least in my life, when I needed to change, and I wanted to change, and I'm sure there's been a few in your life as well. And so wonderful is the reality that God gives us the opportunity to change. And as long as there is still breath in our lungs until that last heartbeat, there is always the opportunity to repent, to turn, to change, to turn back to the Lord, to turn to the Lord. If we've never done that yet for the first time in our lives, God gives us that opportunity. And this comes on the experience of David's own failures in his life. And let me just say on the front side of this, remember, David was a man, the Bible says, who gets this beautiful description as a man after God's own heart. No one else in the Bible gets that recognition. God says that of David. So David was a lover of God. He was someone who was living in relationship with God for a good time in his life. He was walking in close fellowship with God. 
But this psalm is not the psalm of a man who's never known God, never walked with God, and turning to God for the very first time in his life. This is the psalm of someone who was a worshiper of God, who walked with God, but yet for a season of his life turned away. And in his own selfishness gave in to his own sinful lusts and desires and tried to then cover everything up and kind of lived in a backslidden condition for a season in his life until ultimately the Holy Spirit brought him to conviction and he chose to respond and turn back to God. So it gives great encouragement to us as well when we take our detours of, of disobedience, even as a child of God, to realize that David himself experienced the same and, and this was not the end of David's life, right? Think about it. David's ultimate claim to fame at the end of his life, right before he dies, the title he takes to himself, 2 Samuel 23, I believe is where we find it at. David calls himself the sweet psalmist of Israel. David was a giant slayer. You remember the Goliath story? David was a successful battle warrior on the field. David was one of the greatest kings in Israel's history. David was a wonderful shepherd, but David at the end of his life the thing that mattered most to him, he doesn't say David, the greatest king of Israel, David, the giant slayer. He says, David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. You might venture to say that God used David maybe perhaps to a greater degree after his failure than even before his failure. Because after failure, we know come wonderful things like humility and brokenness, right? That's what David's going to say there in verse 17. The sacrifices of God, David learned, were a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. And after David was broken in some ways, there were beautiful things that flowed forth from his life, from the pen as he wrote things by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, great depths of spiritual understanding that David never would have come into contact with had he not gone through some of the failures and mistakes that he made. So God can redeem failure. God can redeem everything, and failure is not the end, and we don't want to believe that lie of the devil that if we have failed, that's it. We're shelved, and we should shelve ourselves because God is done with us. Are there consequences? Absolutely, and I'm not recommending failure or rebellion as a way to get close to God. That's just called stupidity, <laughs> but if and when we do fail, we need to believe what God says about his love and his forgiveness and trust by faith and not how we feel what is true about God despite what we have done in our own lives and believe that God has a way, though the consequences come, and that's a part of the process. We sow to the wind, we reap the whirlwind. It's a part of the process. If we sow to the flesh, we reap corruption. The Bible teaches that. And David dealt with consequences, but God redeemed his failure after his repentance and did really wonderful things through his life. And I just say that to be encouraged as we go through this, because that is a whole part of this process and what David here ultimately represents to us. The psalm on the front end of it, notice before the psalm begins, tells us that this was a psalm of David. It says, when Nathan the prophet went to him and he had gone in to after, excuse me, he had gone into Bathsheba. So again, the backdrop, many of you may be familiar. If you're not, it's important to understand the backdrop or for sake of refresher. We can find the backdrop to this psalm in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. 
There we are told at a time when God was blessing David's life and doing wonderful things. It says in the springtime when kings went out to the wars, and that was a time when kings went out on battlefields and fought wars, which is what David should have been doing. David chose instead to relax and remain behind in the palace. And so as David was choosing to relax and to kind of selfishly indulge his own personal pleasures rather than being involved in the works of the Lord and the battles of the Lord, that's when David got into trouble, when he began to kind of relax spiritually. And as David's hanging around the palace and he's got more idle time on his hands, it says he goes for a a walk. And as he's walking around the palace walls, it tells us that he sees a very beautiful woman. And when the Bible says very beautiful, God doesn't lie. So he sees this very beautiful woman, Bathsheba, bathing, and it tells us that David looked and obviously took a second look, and then he inquired who this woman was. He sent his servants to go inquire about her. Word comes back, hey, David, this is Bathsheba, the wife. That's key word there. She's married. The wife of your soldier, Uriah, one of David's officers, in fact, out fighting one of David's battles where he should have been. And David, rather than take that first caution of the Holy Spirit, blows past the the yellow blinking caution light, right? God always gives us many caution lights along the way before we go off the cliff. And we either blow past them or we pay attention to them. And David blew past that. He said, well, get her anyway. I'd like to... You know, get to know her a little bit better. So he pushes past the first caution light, exercises his selfishness and his authority. They bring Bathsheba to the palace. They spend the night together. They ultimately enter into sexual activity and adultery. David sends her home and thinks, okay, that was a fun night of sin. And okay, everything's done with. Well, shortly afterwards, what happens? The word comes from Bathsheba that she's now pregnant. And her husband's been away at the battle. So she's indicating to David, there's no question whose child this is. David right away goes into what we all tend to do when we first sin many times, our flesh in a way, and the devil's deception is, how do I cover this up? I don't want to face the consequence of this, so certainly there's a way I can just cover this. And no doubt he's a king. He's thinking, certainly I can cover this. So he starts contriving a plan in his mind. How can he hide this sin? How can he keep it covered up? And so what he does is... He sends out to the battlefield. He asks Uriah to come home. And when Uriah comes home, David says, hey, so I brought you home. Tell me, how's it going out there on the battlefield? You're one of my officers. Give me a battle report and update. And then he says, hey, I appreciate you. Give me that report. You know, how about you go home, spend some time with your wife and, and, you know, appreciate you coming back and giving that report to me. And David's thinking, perfect. He'll go home. He'll spend the night with his wife. And then, of course, everyone will just think that she conceived through the night she spent with her husband. And there we go. Hands washed. I'm not going to get caught in this situation. Well, Uriah, having a noble spirit, it tells us, as many military type individuals are, the camaraderie within him was stronger than his own selfish desires. And though he was a married man, and that was his wife, he slept there, it says, outside of David's palace with David's servants. And David wakes up the next morning and finds out that he didn't go home to his wife. And he says, what, what, what are you doing here? I, th- I thought you were going to go. And he said, look, King, I, I appreciate the opportunity, but if my comrades are serving out there on the battlefield, I can't selfishly indulge myself by going home and spending the night with my wife when my comrades are on the battlefield. I, I just, I, I can't do that. Send me back out to the battlefront. David says, well, well, you know, just... Uh, just stick around one more night. So David, okay, that didn't work. I got to come up with another cover-up plan. Plan B, gets him drunk. 
thinking, okay, now his inhibitions will be lowered. Certainly his convictions won't be as strong. David gets him drunk and thinks the same thing. He'll go home to his wife. And again, he doesn't go home to his wife. So David thinks, okay, plan A, plan B failed. I got to do plan C. He writes a letter to Joab, his general on the battlefield, and he sends it back with Uriah. And basically he sends Uriah back out into the battlefield with his own death sentence. And he writes in the letter to General Joab, listen, when Uriah hands you this letter, here are my wishes as your king. I want you in the next battle to put, to put Uriah in the very front of the battle where the warfare is the hottest. And then right in the midst of that, I want you to then retreat from him and leave him there and let him perish. And Joab follows the orders of David. He's a general. It's what he's supposed to do. And then ultimately Uriah is murdered. And so now he's put off the scene. Well, David then gives Bathsheba a little bit of time to mourn and to grieve the loss of her husband, as would be typical. And then David invites her to his palace and plays the part of a good old guy, this wonderful king. He's going to take this pregnant, widowed woman of one of his officers into his harem, and he's going to take care of her and take care of the child. And he's thinking in his mind, no doubt at this point, he's thinking, whew. Took a little bit of work, but I got it all covered. It's all covered up, nothing to, to, to be exposed now. But the problem was it was covered up on a human level, but God saw it all. And God was aware of the adultery. God was aware of the deception, the lying. God was aware of the murder, which David was now guilty of. Adultery and murder, two capital crimes in the nation of Israel at that time. And God was fully aware. And what God did, remember, is he sends Nathan the prophet to David because David was not dealing with his sin. He wasn't confessing and acknowledging it. It seems there was almost a year-long gap where David would not deal with this and was not listening to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Up to 10 months to a year, Psalm 32, we read it, describes how David was speaking, how miserable he was inwardly, but he was, he was playing the cover-up for a long time. And God sends Nathan the prophet, tells him the little story, and David, when he hears about it, he gets so enraged. How could somebody do something so wrong in this parable-type story? And then Nathan says, David, you're the man. David, I'm talking about the sin of what you did. God knows what you did. And David, ultimately, his sin is reproved and he realizes it's been revealed. And then David, in that moment, says, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says, and the Lord has forgiven you, David. And Psalm 51 then becomes this psalm of David's repentance. This is the psalm. I don't know. Maybe this is what David went home and wrote in his diary that night. Maybe this is what David went home and, and, and penned in his prayer journal that night as he was coming to terms with his sin and repenting at this point as he's dealing with his sin now being openly exposed to him and look how he begins verse one what are his first words have mercy upon me O god mercy speaks of not getting what you do deserve justice is getting what you deserve mercy is not getting what you do deserve david knew what he deserved he knew he deserved judgment. He knew even the, the crimes that he committed, adultery and murder. These were capital crimes. He should have been put to death, whether he was a king or not. So the first thing he cries out to God is, God, have mercy upon me. He says, according to your kindness, your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my 
transgressions. Notice David uses that word transgressions. And we said before, the word, you see David used the word transgressions. Verse two, he speaks of iniquity. Verse three, or two, he then says again, sin. These are just different terms to describe wrongdoing and, and disobedience to God. But the word transgression is a term, when we see it in the scripture, that speaks of, of just willful defiance. The idea there is not you you slipped and made a mistake. You reacted in a moment wrongly. The idea of transgression is the line is right there. It says wet paint and you touch it anyway. And so, so David says, look, what I did, I knew in my conscience. It was wrong. I knew before I did it, it was wrong. I knew when I was on the pathway to do it was wrong. I knew as soon as they told me that she was married to someone else that it was wrong. And in my conscience, I knew it was wrong. David had grown up with the law of God. He knew the word of God. He had a relationship with God. So he says, it wasn't just a mistake. David says, this was willful defiance against you, God. I just, I just chose to selfishly transgress. I willfully rebelled. And so he says, Lord, what else can I ask for? But please, have mercy upon me. God, I didn't just mess up. I flagrantly sinned against light. I just selfishly rebelled against you and your authority and your goodness in my life. And notice when David asked for mercy, he doesn't ask for mercy because of anything good that was going on in his life or even the fact that he was repenting. Lord, have mercy because I'm willing to repent now. He says, God, I'm asking for mercy for one reason. He says, because of who you are. He says, according to your loving kindness, and the multitude of your tender mercies. He says, my request for mercy is completely based upon one thing, the fact that you're a merciful God and that you are a loving and a kind God because I don't deserve any of that. That's where David's at here. This is brokenness, right? No more justification. He's not making excuses for anything any longer. He's not trying to justify why he did what he did. He's just owning it. And look, this is the first indication where humility and brokenness and repentance is starting to happen because all the excuses go out the window and a person just takes complete ownership and acknowledgement that they have done wrong and they see that the and i'm going to use this term the gravity of their own evil they see the weight of their own wickedness and what they've done wrong and this is coming upon david and you can tell it by the way he's saying this he says lord please blot out he says verse one my transgressions that word blot there in the hebrew is literally a term that speaks to erase from a record the idea is david saw like he he had his crimes on a record he knew there were multiple things not only the adultery and the murder to start with but on top of that the lying the deceiving the ways in which he had forced people to do things Joab to murder a man that was a good soldier and the ways that he had deceptively used other people to try and manipulate the situation. He's like, Lord, I have a record, a record of so many wrongdoings and crimes. And he's saying, Lord, would you please have mercy, expunge my record, clear my crimes, Lord. Take away, he says, blot out, just erase. That's the idea there, erase my record. And you know, the wonderful thing is, is, is God has the power to do that. And God's willing to do that because he's merciful and he's kind. We all have a record to some degree. We've all done things wrong. We've all made mistakes and, and have a record of crimes and things that we have done wrong in our lives. And the wonderful thing is that God is willing to blot out our transgressions. 
In fact, the Bible even tells us of greater assurance we have that reality available to us because of what Jesus did. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 that Jesus took the handwriting of requirements that was against us and he nailed it to the cross on our behalf. And the imagery there is how in that day when someone would commit crimes, they would write out what they called a certificate of debt. And so when you violated the law on that day, they would write out a certificate of debt. And when you were put into prison for your crime, your certificate of debt did two things. It listed all of your crimes. You did this, you did this. It was an open listing of your crimes. And then together with it also was how long of a punishment and a sentence you had to serve because of that. So then after you served your time, adequate punishment for your crimes, when you got out of prison, they then took your certificate of debt and they wrote across it this word, tetelestai, which was paid in full. And they gave that to you. And the idea was to, as an assurance that yes, you once committed those crimes, but you have served the penalty and the punishment for that. And so therefore you could never be punished for those crimes again, because your certificate said paid in in full, tetelestai. The Bible says that's what Jesus did for us. When Jesus died on the cross, one of his seven statements were, it is finished. You know what he said? Tetelestai, paid in full. The certificate of debt has been blotted out. He's blotted out our certificate of our debt of wrongdoing. And how wonderful that we have that complete assurance. And this is the spirit of the idea of what David's saying, Lord, please erase my transgressions, the record of my sinful, defiant actions towards you. He then says, verse two, going on to ask of this, he then says, wash me thoroughly. Not just wash me, Lord. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Lord, I feel so filthy. Right, And that's what sin does. When we sin against the Lord, there's this experience of guilt that God has hardwired into our conscience as a part of that experience. Not to, to just make us feel miserable, though it does, right? Guilt's a miserable experience. I mean, guilt has by far got to be one of the worst plagues that a person can deal with internally. But God doesn't cause us to deal with guilt when we do wrong things just to make us miserable. He does it so that we would feel uncomfortable and shamed and awkward in a way whereby we would want that guilt to be removed, that it would drive us to God, that ultimately we would cry out to God and ask for God's forgiveness and mercy so that guilt and shame can be taken out of our lives. And here he says, Lord, wash me, he says, thoroughly from the stain of my iniquity. He pictures his sin like something that had stained him. And he's saying, Lord, would you purge me, cleanse me and remove this dark stain from me? And that's many times what it's like when we have guilt in our life. We feel like our life has been stained and like we've become uh, kind of defiled and we just want to be cleansed. That's the longing. Lord, wash me, wash me. And the Bible says the blood of Jesus Christ is able to wash and cleanse us. Of course, ultimately from all sin. David says, cleanse me, from my sin. And there he uses a different term when he says, cleanse me from my sin. There he's using a term, the idea of to heal from a diseased or defiled condition. So he's saying, Lord, please remove the dark stain of my sin. And Lord, please heal the diseased and defiled condition. And the idea there is is like how a leper would be cleansed. The Bible speaks of the cleansing of a leper, and the idea is that the leper had their condition healed, that disease, defiled condition was healed. That's the, the picture there David's asking for. He says, verse three, for I acknowledge my transgressions 
and my sin is always before me. Notice, even though David, for as I said, 10 months to up to a year, David hid his sin from others. And he did a very good job for a season of time. And we can do that, right? For a season of time, we can hide our sin from people. We can play the part outwardly. David was still going through all the spiritual routines. He could do all the God speak. He had everyone fooled in his mind. He got away with it for quite a good period of time. And, and we can hide our sin from others, but the problem, as we know, when we ever try to do that, is though we may hide our sin from others, it's not just that it's not only you know, not hidden from God. The other thing is David says there, verse 3, he says, my sin is always before me. So David said, I hid it from everybody else, but it was before my face every single day. I couldn't get away from it because I knew it in my conscience. I knew I was living a lie. I knew I was deceiving everyone. I knew that I was guilty of wrongdoing in this personal, private area of my life. And David says, I was hiding it from everyone else, but I could never hide it from my own sight. It was before me 24-7. That's why when you read Psalm 32, David says, I was miserable, man. I was like a, you know, a, a, a tree that was suffering through the drought of summer. My life was dried up and I was shriveled and I felt like the hand of God was heavy upon me. And David describes the misery of trying to hide his own sin because every day he could never get away from it. It just made him continually aware of his own reality. And, and what's the answer to that? Well, the antidote's right there in verse three. What did David say? He says, Lord, I acknowledge my transgression. The idea is the antidote for dealing with our own sin constantly being before us is just to admit it openly, to confess it, to acknowledge it, and to embrace ownership. And David finally came to this place where he acknowledged his own transgressions. You know, as David writes of this reality in Psalm 32, he says this, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is is covered. The idea is not covering it to hide it, but now covered by the blood of atonement. Blessed is that man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old, my groaning all the day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me, he says. My vitality was turned to the drought of summer, but I acknowledged my sin to you, he says, God, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. How simple, but yet how hard it is because of how prideful our hearts can be. And all that God asks is that we would take ownership, that we would acknowledge it, that we would blow the whistle on ourselves. And that's how you can tell, listen, that's how you can tell when someone is truly becoming sincerely repentant is they're willing to admit and to acknowledge their error with no excuses. They're willing to come clean with it and just bring it into the light fully. And, and that's what confession is. The word confess just means to say the same thing. It's homologeo in the Greek, in the New Testament. It just means to agree with God. God, I agree with you. What is wrong is wrong, and, and I don't justify it anymore. I just own it as error, and, and I acknowledge it as transgression. I've willfully rebelled against you. He says, verse 4, against you, God, and you only have I sinned. And done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. So David understood the foremost offense of his sin was his rebellion against God. 
David at this point in time, his greatest concern wasn't even first and foremost that he had sinned against Bathsheba, that he had sinned against Uriah, that he had sinned against others who had been hurt because of what he did. His foremost concern was God against you, my relationship with you. God, you have been good to me, and yet against you and you only have I sinned. He understood that foremost offense was rebellion against God and that it hurt God and that it ruined his healthy relationship with God. And and that's the place to start is to be foremost concerned, not with, oh, no, my sin has affected this person or it's going to hurt that person or it's wounded that person. Look, that's a completely wrong pathway to begin with when it comes to dealing with our sin. The first place to begin is on the vertical, is on the vertical, not on the horizontal. The vertical is all about the consequences. And a lot of times that's the mistake many times is that we're sorry for consequences and we're sorry we got caught. But that's not genuine sorrow. Genuine sorrow is not, oh, no, I'm really remorseful because now these consequences are going to come or now these bad things are going to come into my life because of bad choices. No, proper sorrow is God. I am so sorry that I did that to you. I'm so sorry for how that's caused disruption in my relationship with you and David says against you and you only granted do our sins affect other people and do we sin against others by the things that we do absolutely we're we're not dismissing that right But, but the reality is we sin foremost against God but what we recognize is that when we do that our sin harms other people who God loves right so our sin is against God but because of what we do in our sin against God our sin harms and wounds and ruins and destroys aspects of other people because God loves those people. And in a sense, we're even sinning against God by wounding and hurting others with our own wrong decisions. And David's recognizing this and he says, Lord, as I've done this evil in your sight, notice he doesn't tone down the way he looked at his sin. He saw it as evil in the sight of God. He says that you may be found just when you speak, that is when you reprove me, and blameless and guiltless when you judge. David's saying, Lord, you have a fully just basis to judge me. That's how you can tell his heart's in a pure place. He then says, verse five, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. It is brought forth into this world. And in sin, my mother conceived me. So David here makes reference to this idea, even we talked about this past Sunday morning of what we call original sin. David says, It's not that my mother and father were committing sin when they conceived me. That's not what David's saying here. He's not saying that his parents conceived him out of an adulterous relationship or a sinful, uh, you know, conception. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is I was brought forth from my mother's womb with an inherently sinful condition. And what David's alluding to here in verse five, he's not saying this is an excuse for my sin. That's not what David's doing here. He's not saying, well, I'm sinful from birth. Uh, You know, woe is me. I was born a sinner. I'm innately sinful, and therefore that's why I did this. David's not making an excuse for his sin. What he's doing is making a proper evaluation of how utterly sinful he is. And he realizes, I didn't just do some dumb things. I've been a mess and a broken, sinful man from the moment that I was born. And I just carried it out in my actions recently. I just let my inherent sinful nature selfishly control my life, and I just automatically carried out this wrong nature within me. And again, the Bible does teach this. We talked about it Sunday morning, that we have all inherited from Adam a sinful 
nature and disposition. We only prove that we're sinners as we live our lives. The Bible says we are sinful from birth. And then we just begin to commit sin. We carry out through things we think wrong and things we say wrong and do wrong. We just carry out the reality of what the Bible says from the start is that we're born inherently sinful. Like a magnet, we're drawn towards doing what's wrong. And this is why David was capable to do this. Again, even as a man of God, he was walking with God. And then all of a sudden now he's committing adultery, murdering people and living a lying, deceptive cover up for almost a year in his life. And David's saying the problem is very clear. The problem is me. The problem is my heart. Again, Jeremiah says to us, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The idea is our heart is not only desperately wicked, but the Bible says even more than being desperately wicked, it's deceitful above all things. Not just desperately wicked is my heart. But it's deceitful even more than it's desperately wicked because it deceives me how desperately wicked it really is. Because I don't even know how wicked my own heart is. And look, the reality is we could look at David and be like, oh, I can't believe David would do that. I would never do something like that. The reality is, look, you don't lack for potential. You may lack for opportunity, and you ought to thank the grace of God for that. But don't you ever look at someone who's committed any form of sin and think, oh, I'm somehow above that or I could never do that. You don't lack for potential. We all have the same potential. By the grace of God, maybe you didn't get the opportunity to do something that wrong. And be thankful. And learn the correspondence course. Learn from David's mistake and hopefully don't repeat the same mistake. But all of us have the capability, even as David here, to go down a path that's very dark and very devious if we allow our heart to carry out its natural condition. And that is why we need to be in close relationship with God. Because apart from that, our hearts can gravitate real quickly down to a very dark path and a very dark road. And David proves out this reality. He says, verse six, Lord, I know what you desire because of how deceitful I am within. Look what he says. He says, you desire truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part, inwardly says, there you can make me to know wisdom. Why is David saying that? Because what had David been doing up to this point? He had been living a lie. He'd been living a lie. And he says, Lord, that's the problem. He says, you don't desire that we would fake it outwardly. He says, you desire that we would be genuine inwardly. You desire to me be true inwardly because God sees the condition of my heart. God's aware of what's going on in every one of our lives. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that everything is laid naked and bare before the eyes of him to whom we give account. Nothing's hidden from God. So, so we're completely deceiving ourselves if we don't recognize the problem is with us, right? That's what James says in James chapter one. He says that when we enter into sin, it's because we're drawn away and enticed by our own evil desires. We should never blame God or blame what's happened. Like, well, if my life didn't go through this, or if I wasn't subjected to that, or if I didn't experience this, and that's the mistake that's as old as the Garden of Eden. Blaming our conditions for our own errors and mistakes. No, the reason why we all make mistakes and do evil and wrong things like David from time to time is because we are innately sinful. And, and when we don't keep that in check and we don't stay real with God in the inward part and we're not living in truth, but walking in error and living in the dark... He says, that's when we get off course. And he says, so Lord, I know what you're longing for. You desire, he says, truth 
in the inward parts. God wants us to be real within, that we would just be genuine with him. That's where humility comes into play because when we have a humble heart, then God can deal with us and he can begin to instruct us and give us wisdom even how to get out of the mess once we get ourselves into the mess. And so you come true in your heart inwardly. Get true with God on the inside. And he says, then, Lord, you can make me to know wisdom. What do I do now in the midst of this failure? David goes on to cry out more for God's cleansing in his life. He says in verse 7, Lord, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Again, he's continually longing, Lord, cleanse me. Wash me. You notice as you go through this psalm, there's these repeated references. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly. Cleanse me from my sin. Here he comes back to again, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Interesting, David uses this term, purge me with hyssop. It's a picturesque statement David's making here. The hyssop plant, like a small little uh, bushy plant, sometimes it would grow even outside of uh, stone walls. But the hyssop plant, if you remember from the Old Testament, was what was used to sprinkle blood in the Passover. It was used what was to sprinkle blood and water in the cleansing of a leper. So the hyssop plant was something that was used to bring forth cleansing. And David understood this picture. And so he's saying, Lord, in the same way, would you pass over me with your judgment and give me mercy instead? Lord, would you cleanse me with the blood of an innocent sacrifice that I might be clean. He says, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. You know, isn't it interesting? Isaiah ultimately makes the declaration where God says there in the prophet Isaiah, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, he says, they shall be whiter than snow. Interesting, God God says, "I'm, I'm trying to reason with you here. Why live in guilt? Why live in guilt and shame? God says, be reasonable. Let me wash you. Let me forgive you. Let me cleanse you. Let me take the weight of that guilt off of you and the stain of sin away from your life. I can make you clean again, God says. David goes on to pray, Lord, and make me hear joy and gladness, the bones that you have broken, he says, that they may rejoice. He says, God, hide your face from my sins. In other words, God, don't look upon them anymore. And again, look what he says, blot out, he comes back to again, my iniquities. Well, you can tell David's sins really brought some real harm and damage into his life personally, because he says, verse eight, that the bones that you have broken may rejoice again. Broken bones are painful experiences, right? A broken bone is very painful. And what David's saying is, this is part of the the damage of sin. Sin's not just wrong, it's destructive. It it, it breaks and wounds and, and causes harm to us personally. See, God doesn't just not want us to sin because it's bad. God doesn't say, well, I don't want you to sin because it's bad. He says, I don't want you to sin because it's bad for you. It ruins lives. It breaks things. It damages things. It's like a broken bone. It's going to cause suffering in your life. And any one of us who's gone down a pathway of sin, we know the suffering like a broken bone that it brings into our lives, the pain. And God wants to spare us from that. And so he says, Lord, please make me here again joy and gladness. It seems that had disappeared from David's life. It was hard to really be genuinely joyful. Oh, I'm sure he could laugh and (laughs) outwardly and play the part like he was happy. But genuine gladness and joy didn't exist when David was living in sin. 
because he was miserable in the guilt and shame. And he says, oh, Lord, I long to, again, have joy and gladness in my heart. He then prays, verse 10, and create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. So David begins to plead with God now to do a work in his heart to change his heart condition. And what's interesting, David in verse 10 there says, God, create in me a clean heart. That term create that David uses there in the Hebrew is the actual Hebrew term bara, which is coming all the way back from the book of Genesis when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And bara is a Hebrew term that means to create something out of nothing. The idea is you're not taking existing parts and assembling something. That's one way you could say, well, hey, that person created a watch. Well, they didn't really create a watch. They assembled a watch from existing parts and components. That's not creating something out of nothing is miraculous. God spoke and nothing became something, right? God miraculously created something out of nothing. David uses that term here, bara. When he says, create in me a clean heart, what David's saying is, God, I need a miracle in my heart. God, because of my sin and because of what I've done, I'm asking, would you do something miraculous in my heart? God, change my heart. Create miraculously in me, he says, a brand new heart. And that's exactly what God has the power to do, right? God has the power to take away our heart of stone, the Bible says, and give us a tender heart of flesh. God can give us, the Bible says, a new heart. And sometimes that needs to be our prayer. God, miraculously give me a brand new heart. I'm tired of this old heart. Lord, give me a new heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Again, the idea of steadfast is an unwavering, committed and faithful spirit. And he says, Lord, renew or restore that back to me. He's saying, Lord, restore back to me that prior state of my former condition. When things were right between me and you, he says, God, restore that back to its previous way that again, I'd have a committed and faithful heart. He's praying that God would change his heart and God would give him a right heart. Again, I love this because David realizes he's completely dependent upon God to do something in his heart that he can't do, right? We, we can't change our hearts, can change our minds, but if we change our minds, God can miraculously change our hearts because he's in the power business of doing that. And if we ask him, he can miraculously give a brand new heart to you if you ask him for it. He says, and Lord, don't cast me away from your presence. David knew that sin separates. That's what sin does. It ruins relationships. It causes separation. He says, Lord, I don't want to be distant from you. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Now understand when David's saying that, he's not saying it in a New Testament sense as you and I understand it. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit rested upon people's lives. In the New Testament, we're actually indwelt with the Holy Spirit. So God's not going to give us his Holy Spirit and take his Holy Spirit back from us when we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit indwelling. What David's referring to there, no doubt, is that the Lord's spiritual anointing and favor upon his life would not be removed from his life. I think David's thinking about what he saw happen in Saul's life. Because remember when Saul rebelled and turned away from God and didn't turn back to God, eventually the Bible says that the spirit of the Lord departed off of Saul's life. 
that is the favor and the anointing of God's help and blessing was pulled away from Saul's life. And David is saying, Lord, your gracious spiritual help and favor has been upon my life. Your closeness and your power and anointing has been upon my life. And Lord, I pray that because of what I've done, that you wouldn't take your spirit's anointing away from me. Please, Lord. I don't want to become a, a, a ruined man. Lord, please, he's begging, don't take your favor and your anointing of your spirit away from me because of what I've done wrong. Instead, he says, Lord, please, verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Notice it's God's salvation, not ours. Your salvation, Lord, give me back that joy again that I've lost because of my sinful actions and uphold me by your generous spirit. And he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Notice David understood there is no more powerful vessel many times to turn other people who are sinful back into right relationship with God than those who've experienced it themselves. He says, Lord, if you do this for me, he says, then I will be inspired to teach other transgressors your ways of forgiveness and restoration through repentance and confession. And he says, and many sinners shall be converted to you. He's saying, Lord, redeem my failure. Redeem my failure, Lord. I can't change my failure and I'm going to have to face the consequences. But Lord, can you get some mileage out of it? Can you use my failure to help me to help other failures to turn to you and that many could be converted to you because of my mistakes and lessons I've learned? He says, verse 14, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. O God, no doubt thinking of Uriah, the guilt of the murder, the God of my salvation and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, he says, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise for you do not desire sacrifice, David says, or else I would give it. You don't delight in burnt offering. Now, that's very interesting. David understood the way to make things right with God wasn't to just give to God some religious offering. He says, Lord, you don't desire sacrifice or I would just give it. See, David understood, again, adultery and murder. These were capital offenses. There was no prescribed Old Testament sacrifice according to the law. You were supposed to be put to death. So David realized, I can't just offer to you, God, some religious routine or some you know, spiritual practice. And, and, and if I just do enough good spiritual sacrifices and offerings, I guess that's what you want. If I could just weigh the balance that, okay, Lord, I did these, 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 these things wrong. And again, even as in some religious circles. Okay, so then therefore what you need to do is, is you need to say six of these and pray seven of those and do four of these things and you'll tip the scales and God will forgive you. And David says, no way, man, it doesn't work like that. God, you don't want just religious formality to kind of, well, okay, I'm just going to try and do some good things to make my conscience feel better. He says, no, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are what a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. David understood what God desired was a broken human spirit. That is humility, that that spirit of stubborn pride and deceitfulness that holds God at a distance or rejects God's light or doesn't want to bring things into the light and deal with their own condition before God. He says, Lord, what you want is for our stubborn human spirit to become broken before you. 
that our spirit of willful rebellion would be broken and that we would have, he says, a contrite heart. And the word contrite basically speaks of feeling strong remorse due to a sensitivity of your own guilt. That is that you would realize that you are wrong in such a way that it saddens and grieves you and therefore you're a broken heart condition before God and God says, that's all I was looking for. That's all I was looking for. That you would come to that place. You know, the Bible tells us that the poor in spirit shall experience the kingdom of God. The idea there is, is the poor person who recognizes the poverty of their own condition. That's what God wants us to do, to recognize the poverty of our own condition. And he says, this, Lord, that's what you're willing to, to answer to when our heart and our spirit becomes broken before you. And then David concludes the psalm by saying, God, do good in your good pleasure to Zion and build the walls of Jerusalem. And then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering, and then you shall offer bulls on your altar. What's David saying as he concludes here? I think what David's referring to in verses 18 and 19 is that he did not want his sin and failures as the king to have a negative effect upon the kingdom. And David knew, because of what I've done wrong, God, I may potentially be hindering and holding back your plan for Jerusalem. My sins and my wrongdoing, they're not just, you know, well, my sins don't hurt anybody else. David said, no, no, no. He says, my sins could potentially be holding back the goodness and the plan and the wonderful work of God for Jerusalem. And he says, Lord, please don't let my failures hold back the good things and your pleasure that you want to do for Zion to build the walls of Jerusalem and to receive sacrifices of righteousness. And David here very wisely understands that a person's sins, they don't sin alone. And David understood, my sins impact other people. And it's not just me getting right with God. It's me getting right with God because as long as I'm not right with God, I am a wrong influence on everyone else connected to me. And David says, Lord, please, I don't want to be guilty of that. I want to be right with you so that I'm not hindering or hurting or harming or holding back the good things you want to do in anyone else's life. And what a beautiful example David sets here in regards to this. You know, before we pray and conclude this evening, I just want to draw your attention to something I would be amiss if I didn't point out the reality here. And it says here in verse 10, David prays, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. That's a great context for coming into communion because the Bible says that we should examine ourselves when we come to the table of the Lord. Right. And if there's something that's become amiss in our spiritual lives, that we wouldn't just partake of the elements of communion in kind of a cavalier way and yet continue to just persist in sinful living in our personal life. And we know we're doing something wrong, whether it's an attitude or a practice or some sinful habit that we've just been indulging in and then just partake of the elements as if they're meaningless when the reality is they represent the suffering and the blood of Christ that he painfully endured to offer forgiveness for us, to offer salvation to us. And so it's a time for us to search our hearts, and I encourage you as we partake of communion tonight, that if there's something that you need to get right with the Lord, take David's psalm here. Take David's psalm and talk to the Lord. Deal with it. Bring it into the light. Let David's example inspire you to do the same. 
But you know, David's words there in verse 10 are beautiful testimony as well to really to the experience of salvation. That is coming to right relationship with God for the very first time. That we say, God, create in me a clean heart, O God, as a sinful person, and renew a steadfast spirit. Give me back the original spirit that man was supposed to have from the beginning before sin entered in the world and corrupted all of our lives. You know, i tell you a beautiful story. I've mentioned this from the pulpit before, but this verse, verse 10 here, was the actual verse that I was able to use to lead my own grandfather to Christ before he ultimately passed away not too long afterwards. And, and there's the beauty and the testimony of the power of God's word. And this is why this testimony must continue to be heard and whenever I think about or read over this verse, because my grandmother had been in the hospital for a time. She had accepted the Lord, had some procedures. Then ultimately when she passed away, I got the phone call from my mom and went over to tell my grandfather. He was actually at the house when she had passed away. So I went over to tell him that my grandmother had passed away. And of course, you know, when I shared with him, he was incredibly upset. He broke down. We, you know, cried together, whatever. And one of the things that he kept saying is, oh, I'm going to miss her so much. It's just so, I'm never going to see her again. I'm going to miss, how am I going to, and for whatever reason, the Lord impressed upon my heart to be able to say to him, Grandpa, I know you're going to miss her for a time, but you don't have to miss her forever. You don't have to miss her forever. You can see her again. You can see her again. And so I began to explain how she had prayed to receive Jesus uh, with my mom before she had kind of went into a condition where she wasn't real conscious anymore and that she was with the Lord. And I said, and, and that, that can be your assurance and you can see her again. And I'll never forget, he said to me, he said, you know, I, I, I don't know if this is exactly what you're talking about, but he says, when I was a young boy, he says, I don't know, I was maybe nine, 10 years old. He says, somebody took me to this church thing. And he said, they taught us this phrase there. He said, it said something like this. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Now, my grandfather wasn't a Christian. For decades the seed of God's word, that verse, had been in his soul. The Bible, but in his soul, the Bible says that God's word is like incorruptible seed. For decades, because some children's ministry worker planted the seed of God's word into his soul, though he didn't act upon it or respond to it, he lived his life for decades and decades a different way. But when the time was right and the Holy Spirit fell upon that truth of God's word, as he quoted that verse to me, I use that very verse to preach the gospel to him and say, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And I use that very verse, created me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit with me. And I explain to him, that's exactly what needs to happen because all of our hearts are dirty from sin. And Jesus died on the cross to provide forgiveness. And that's the problem. Your heart's not clean before God. My heart wasn't clean before God. And you need to ask Jesus to forgive you and to cleanse your heart and to give you a right spirit. And I was able to preach the gospel and he accepted Christ. And, and for a short period of time afterwards, lived a genuine life with excitement about the Lord. And look, this evening, let me just say to you, if you could be in this room this evening and you have never genuinely accepted Jesus Christ, this won't save you. 
only calling upon the name of the Lord to forgive your sins and to ask Jesus to change your heart is where salvation comes from. And my encouragement to you is receive the gift of God, which is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And then partake of communion as a way to say outwardly, I've received salvation inwardly from Jesus. But you have to acknowledge you're a sinner and confess that Jesus Christ is the only Savior and ask him to forgive you. But he will do a miracle in your heart. If anyone's in Christ, they become a new creation. Old things pass away and all things become new. It's yours for the asking. Don't pass that opportunity if you need such. Let's stand together. Let's pray.